Dr. Sherry Larson Heckley from the English Department and also a member of Faculty Council. And on behalf of Faculty Council, it's my pleasure to welcome you to chapel this morning. As we're going to take some time to gather in God's presence and reflect on ways that our intellectual activities, our identity as a college, increase our ability to love God with all of our being. As we move into the final weeks of the semester, as you finish research projects, write those last papers, and study for exams, it seems appropriate to take time to ask, what's the connection between scholarship and worship? In the next two weeks, our academic lives will bring each of us many opportunities to know and love God more. It would be a shame to miss those opportunities because we weren't looking for them. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn that's about one person's life dwelling in those opportunities. It's by the 19th century English poet. The lyrics are by the 19th century English poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. And the song is Strong Son of God, Immortal Love. Um, as we talked about today, we thought that the tune and the words might be a little bit unfamiliar to you. So although the sentiments of striving as an intellectual person to love God more might be familiar, we're going to take a couple of minutes first to give you an opportunity to get acquainted with the tune. So listen as Derek plays through the tune once for us and prepare your hearts and your minds for the gifts that God has to give you this morning. Will you pray with me? God of immortal love, may the words of all our speakers' mouths and the meditations of each person's heart and mind be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Listen for the word of God. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment of the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This verse gets me every time. (laughs) This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. This morning we want to ask what it means for us as a community of West, at Westmont to love the Lord our God with all our mind. This passage suggests what it doesn't mean to be as clever as the Pharisees and be able to win arguments. Um, the passage also offers a lot of understanding into our commitments. But this morning I'm going to leave that scriptural exegesis to you in the weeks to come and turn a little bit for a minute to my own discipline, um, and that is the realm of poetry and storytelling. The lyrics we just sang introduced a section to a long poem that Tennyson wrote um, that in part tells the story of his college experiences. That poem's titled In Memoriam A.H.H. Just after leaving Cambridge University, Tennyson unexpectedly suffered the loss of his closest university friend, Arthur Hallam, which explains those three initials at the end of the poem because Hallam died suddenly while he was traveling on the continent without Tennyson. The sudden tragedy and the loss that it caused for Tennyson caused him to mourn for several years, writing out pieces of poetry that would eventually become in memoriam. And in that poetry, he explores his faith in God, um, along with the tensions between that faith and the things that he and Hallam had learned together at Cambridge, um, 
that sometimes seem to stretch the limits of those faith, of that faith, and also exploring the tension between a God he believed in and loved, but a God who couldn't keep Hallam alive. That struggle probably lasted tennis in a lifetime, um, but the poem records 13 years of that struggle. And in those 13 years, he completed all of In Memoriam. It's a long poem. It's a poem for summer reading while you have the time. Um, those are the lines, the introductory lines are the lines that we sang this morning. And they record how after this post-college struggle, Tennyson came to be somebody who could begin a poem about that struggle with the lines, strong son of God, immortal love, calling on Christ as he talked about what his experience had been. The record of his grief comes to a place where he asks for more knowledge because knowledge is a beam in darkness and a beam that can grow. This faith for Tennyson becomes a faith that's more reverent than the faith that he started with, the faith that he had when he met Hallam, the faith that he had at Cambridge, because of the time that he'd spent at Cambridge, because of his knowledge of Hallam, and to, in some cases, because, particularly because of the loss of Hallam. So that's one college story. It's from 150 years ago, and it's from England. This morning, um, we have three people to tell their stories and put those stories in a context that's a little bit closer to your own. I am very pleased, and would you you three please join me, to bring up this morning Janet Clark, Joseph Stevick, and Kimberly Jamez, who are going to talk about how, in very different ways, they have met God at Westmont, and in this time, become people who love God with all their minds. At some point in my sophomore year here at Westmont, I remember sitting in chapel. I was no doubt only half offering my worship to the Lord as my mind wandered to all the things that I needed to get done. The semester was winding down and I needed to to figure out how I was going to get all my work done. Sound familiar? Chapel was for me a much needed rest every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the busyness of school. And that's what school was for me, busyness. It certainly kept my schedule full but I saw it as just one more thing I needed to do before I could really start my life. That year, Bart Tarman was Westmont's chaplain. One, part- one particular day, he was speaking on the baptism of Jesus. He read a passage to us, and out of which gospel I don't remember, so I'm just going to read it to you today out of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That morning, what Bart wanted for us to see was that in Jesus, God was well pleased. But it wasn't until after this point, after he was baptized, that Jesus began his ministry. Up until his baptism, Jesus was a carpenter, a laborer. But it was in this work that God was well pleased. Jesus put all that he had into the work that he did. 
Hayden only put half of his effort into his carpentry or whatever it was that he was working on at the time. He offered everything, and it was this that pleased his father. Bart encouraged us then to be like Christ in pleasing our God where we are, not simply anticipating serving God in, later in life through, late, through lay leadership or pastoral positions or wherever it was that we were headed. We were to please God where we were as students, pleasing God through hard work and studies, through pressing on late in the semester when the end seems so close. 22 days, right, seniors? But who's counting? And it's so easy not to care about that last paper or that last exam or that final that's not really going to affect your grade. I remember the students chuckling when Bart told us to please God by working hard in school. I laughed too, but I wrote a few notes to myself, and as the weeks wore on, I continued to remember Bart's words. I took them to heart, and I wanted to please my God through my work as a student. I wanted to love the Lord my God with all my mind. My mind is a gift from him. My status as a student at Westmont is a gift from him. My financial resources to pay for Westmont is a gift from him. To love the Lord my God with all my mind, then, is to be a good steward of these gifts he has given to me. Dr. Larson Heckley just read to us from Matthew. When Jesus gives this greatest commandment, he's quoting from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, we hear the same thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. As some of you might know, I had the privilege of attending Jerusalem University College in the fall of 2000, my junior year. I quickly learned that this passage of Deuteronomy is one of the key verses for the Jews. The church that I attended in Israel, along with most other Messianic churches in the Jewish synagogues, sang what they call the Shema every week. Um, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They want to love God with all, their, with all that they have, their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving Yahweh and worshiping him is the greatest commandment. I arrived in Israel on August 27, 2000. Four and a half weeks into my semester, on September 28th, Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The day of his visit was the beginning of today's intifada, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that we've been hearing so much about in these last few weeks. At JUC, I was enrolled in a course called Palestinian Politics and Society, and what a time it was to be taking a course like this. My professor was a Palestinian man who had spent most of his life in the Gaza Strip. He had so much to teach us, but at the same time, he came to class every week a broken man. I remember Dr. Sabella walking into class some days with his shoulders hunched, looking well beyond his ears. His people were hurting, and so was he. But he came to class anyway because he wanted to teach us. He knew there were things for us to learn. It would have been so easy for me to let go of my studies at that time. I wondered if there wasn't more important things to life than just going to school. I knew so many people in Israel who were hurting as a result of the conflict. Ishai, a Jewish man. Suleiman and Shaban, Muslims. Reuben and Zat, Christians. All from different religions, all affected by the Intifada. My studies seemed so insignificant in comparison with what these people were dealing with. Some days I just didn't want to get out of bed. I wanted to stay in my room and pretend that nothing was happening in the world. To pretend that the West Bank towns only 10 miles away from my school weren't being bombed that night. To pretend that my friends' lives were just going on as usual. I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about because we experienced something similar to it in the days following September 11th. That feeling of, is it worth it? Isn't there more to life than just this homework assignment I have to do? 
you know what? There is more to life. But this is where God has placed us, as students. In Israel, I chose to attend my classes and put effort into my work, even though there is so much more going on in the country. I attended my classes, and I finished my papers. I listened to what my Palestinian professors taught me. I listened to what my Jewish professors taught me. And I listened to what my American professors taught me. I was challenged to find a balance and to filter out the biases. And I applied what I was learning to what was going on in other Israeli towns at the time. And in so doing, I worshiped God with my mind. And I was blessed by this. I was able to learn more about the people of Israel and Palestine and to begin to understand their conflict and their pain. I was given the opportunity to come home and teach my friends and family about the land and the people and bring some sense of understanding for the people in my life here in the States. By embracing this opportunity that we have to learn and study our world, whether that's in a history class or a philosophy class or physics or biology or English or any of the other disciplines, we're loving God with all our minds because we're using the gift that he has given us. Through my years at Westmont, school has become more than just school. Classes are not necessarily related to my career goals are now an opportunity to learn more about God's world and they challenge my way of thinking and understanding God. In short, my time in my classes has become an opportunity to worship God with all of my mind. I, I, I believe God's purpose in having me up here is also just to share um, on a personal level how um, being educated has allowed me to grow in my faith and um, worship him more than ever. The subject of intermingling faith and education has always bothered me. I, uh, right from the start, I, I get confused. You know, am I, am I a Christian because of what I've learned in the classroom and because of what I know about the world and how amazingly complex things are? Or am I a student because I'm a Christian and because God has blessed me with a mind that can think critically about the things around me? And do I question the, uh, the use of resources, too? It's a lot of money to come to Westmont. And if I'm to offer my life as a living sacrifice to God, well, why don't we all just you know, write out our tuition checks to World Vision next semester and go work in nonprofit organizations? I mean, is it, is it that good of a question? I, I think it is. I mean, what are we doing here? Does education, does academia, does it prepare us to be more Christ-like? And I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, higher education isn't just that thing you go and do after high school because it's the next step because you have nowhere else to go. I want to share with you what I, what I did come out of high school like, and that was having very few doubts about the world um, in general. I thought I, that I knew uh, who I was and, and what I needed to do um, to accomplish God's will essentially knowing what God's will was. Um, I was ready for a challenge. I didn't set too many goals because I sort of enjoyed the, the ambiguity of just being a good good student, um, though I was over-focused on grades. Um, I also thrived a lot on busyness. I, I, I wanted to continue to be doing stuff, uh, stretch myself thin in many different areas because it made me feel like I was accomplished and it made me feel like I was useful. Um, and even when there weren't a million things to be doing at once, uh, I usually worked, uh, threw myself so completely into my work that I, uh, you know, you almost dread getting up in the mornings. I know you guys don't know what that's like, but yeah, you, uh, you become pretty, pretty thin. Um, but I actually liked it that way. I, I enjoyed the chaos. 
Um, and I knew after even the first few days of coming to Westmont that this was a place that I could probably make some pretty good impressions. And, uh, and I wanted to make good impressions, and it's, it's, um, I'm ashamed to admit that. Um, but I changed, and it wasn't necessarily a Bible study or a single chapel speaker that, um, that worked in me. That it's, it's a continual process of being here, learning, being taught to think critically about uh, the world around us that, uh, that accomplished that change in my life, I believe. Um, you know, so what have I been doing here that's, that's made a difference? I've been studying physics. I, uh, I run a lot. I, uh, you know, I participate in spring sing and I, I eat in the D.C. Well, did. Um, and you guys are saying, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? And, uh, you know, it doesn't. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And uh, as Christians, we kind of say, well, duh, you know, that's yeah, basic. But um, what I think I'm learning is that it's not duh. <laughs> that there's, uh, the God I know now is so much bigger and so much uh, more worthy of worship than the God I knew when I came here four years ago. And uh, the fact that he should say, that he should suggest that we love him with all our minds is just bizarre. It doesn't make sense that he would allow us the, the, to, to begin to comprehend his infinite, um, his infinite love, his infinite glory, um, it's just his capacity to love us. Um, you know, our minds, the finite ones that we use to understand, like, South Park humor, are the ones that he's saying, go ahead and, and start exploring, you know, this creation, this, uh, this infinitely complex uh, being that I am. So it's ridiculous. I've come to realize that, and yet it's perfect also. I mean, you, you know, our minds are prepared in such a way that they... They do desire to, to know what they cannot comprehend. And in no way does this mean that what we're learning here is useless. I, I, instead, to me, it makes more sense than ever to, uh, to pursue the truth. Because even though we may never have the answers, we, we do have confidence in an unchanging God who does have the answers. And it sort of frees us to say, to ask questions, to... Uh, to dig deeper because we know we're just not going to run up against some nothingness, some void that's, uh, that's behind everything. I love physics for this very reason. I love, uh, I love studying physics because the principal goal of physics is sort of that embodies the pursuit of truth. Um, you know, we ask again and again how things work. We, uh, we don't stop asking. Uh, we run up against a wall occasionally um, but we, we don't we don't stop and say, well, uh, you know, I guess there's because we're never going to have all the answers that it's not worth pursuing. You know, we build in a build a model of an atom and we go, okay, well, that's cool. And then we build, you know, the model of the electrons around it. We go, well, that's even more complex. And we we take the you know fundamental particles of the protons and neutrons and we say, you know, how do they, you know, what what laws are they obeying? And um, there are uncertainties in the, in, the, in the quantum mechanics of the, of the world we live in, but, gee, we're not going to let that stop us either. It, it mirrors our search for truth. I mean, it mirrors 
what we are intended to do as students, and that is to continue pursuing what is right, what is good, even though we may not ever accomplish, you know, we may never reach that point, but we can have confidence that, uh, that God is there waiting with, you know, for the, with the answers. Um, similarly, even though the whole truth we may never know about ourselves, about uh, his certain historical events, about laws of nature, um, we never may... Um, Sorry, I'm really nervous. Um, anyway, we are called to be students of the truth. And I may never completely understand why I struggle with certain issues, but the process of recognizing those issues and allowing God to work in, uh, in my life is what the, what the important result is. And there's no room for hiding behind this veil of ignorance, pretending to have some agenda that's above uh, God's understanding. I've tried that. It's not fun either. So what I've learned then is that this, this innate curiosity that we've been given is, will hopefully lead us to recognize that as we learn, aided by academic institutions, that the furthest thing from our minds should be this false confidence that God and other people are recognizing us for our outstanding intellectual capabilities. I, Luke 9:24. for what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? So instead of being confident as outstanding intellectual human beings, we might be surprised to gradually, sometimes painfully, allow ourselves to become smaller, more humble, and more astonished than ever at God's absolute incomprehensibility over and over and over again. Blaise Pascal was a great physicist, and he understood this, I think, very well. He said, there are an infinite number of things which are beyond reason, and that it is more feeble reason if it does not if it does go as far as to realize that let me say that again Pascal once wrote reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it and that it is merely feeble if it does go as far as to realize that so if nothing else our undergraduate educations should instill in us this, a deeper understanding of how, fa- how far we fall short of the mark when it comes to realizing the significance of our Creator. And what good does that do? It, if God is love and our capacity to understand God increases, even just a micron, then in essence we are being equipped to, as followers of, followers of Christ by expanding our capacity to love. Thanks. this to my short hype. Does that work? All right. Well, the issue here, as I see it, is that our idea of God is often far too small, as Joseph just kind of mentioned. And as a result, our ideas about worship are also far too small. Most of us come from the North American evangelical tradition that compartmentalizes worship into time slots activities with Christian labels. So we learn to believe that singing praise songs or going to Bible studies or participating in ministries every now and then are sufficient forms of worship for the average Christian. And when we think about careers devoted to worship, 
we kind of only include those careers that are focused on ministry full-time. We focus on preachers and evangelists and overseas missionaries as the ones who really only seem to have lifestyles devoted to worship. All the rest of us worship at other times. But it seems to me that this type of thinking only reflects a very narrow, limited idea that God is interested only in converting souls or in comforting us as we're in this world making it. It, it doesn't consider that God might be interested in changing the world. It gives in to the fact that, that, well, Satan must be in control, wreaking havoc on things. It assumes that God doesn't care or doesn't want to do something about the AIDS in Africa that's ravaging the continent. God doesn't want to do something about the war in Israel or the crime or the racism that assaults our world and causes so much pain and so much hurt. What about the task of furthering God's kingdom on earth? Isn't that also a form of worship? What about sending missionaries into politics, business, medicine? Don't we need competent Christians working for God's will in those arenas as well? I think we do. And I think in order to have competent Christians, we need to focus on scholarship, on learning, on preparation. And that is, in and of itself, an act of worship. Yes, in one sense, it does uh, expound our, or expand our idea of God and help us to love him better in the process, but it's also a sacrifice of our time and our energy, uh, an act of faith that God is somehow going to use all of that work to allow us to be used by furthering his kingdom somehow, allow us to be used in some vocation to do something great in this world. I'll admit, though, that when I first came to Westmont, I didn't really understand this concept of scholarship as preparation and therefore as worship to further God's kingdom. I mean, at the time, I probably would have thought that it was kind of a cop-out, that the idea that scholarship is worship was probably a good excuse to say, oh, I have to study instead of going to church. Uh, you see, at the time, I thought my relationship with Christ was perfect, or, well, it was pretty good. I mean, I participated in all the standard forms of worship that I just mentioned, the, the quiet times constantly, the Bible studies, and all those things that are great. But I didn't realize some of the inconsistencies in my life, like the fact that my main goal was to become a psychiatrist, a doctor, for the prestige and for the fact that I'd be able to make ample amount of money and be solvent. But at the same time, you know, my quiet times were going great. Worship was great, I thought. There wasn't a problem. I had a narrow view of what worship was. But I didn't realize that until my sophomore year. I was taking an intro to sociology with Dr. Chirwardna, and uh, we were starting to talk about urban poverty in America. And at the time, I wasn't exactly excited about the topic because it didn't seem to relate at all to me, to what I wanted to do. Uh, and there's actually a point when I raised my hand and asked him, well, doesn't Jesus say in the Bible somewhere that the poor are always going to be with us? As if that matters when you're trying to understand the pain and the dynamics involved in poverty so that maybe you can somehow work to alleviate it. 
Dr. I'll never forget the disgust on Dr. J's face as he looked at me and tried to explain how callous the comment was. But I didn't get it. It wasn't until I had done some of the reading and I came back to class the following session and he showed a video that it finally hit me. The video was a, a mini-series that dramatized the statistics and the theories that we had been learning about. There are three storylines going on, but there was one that really hit me because it touched on so many aspects of my personal life. It was about a black woman raising her child in the projects. And she was raising him alone because her husband couldn't live there because they wouldn't get welfare if the man was in the house. And all of the focus was on his need to achieve his need to do well in education because it was their only way out. It was their only chance to get out of this cycle of, of being in the underclass. <laughs> this woman, she reminded me so much of my mom. She was his constant cheerleader, constantly reminding him how important school was, how, how it was key, how they were going to make it. And he was so positive. In spite of everything against him, in spite of depressing conditions, in spite of peer pressure to do otherwise, drugs on the street, in spite of everything, he kept going. And then we neared his eighth grade graduation. And he goes up to his mom and he says, you know, mom, I need a suit. Our teachers are requiring all the boys to wear a suit and I don't have one. And she looks, totally conflicted. And she's like, you know, we don't have the money for a suit. But you know what? I'll make it happen. I'll make it happen because this is an important event in your life, and, and we'll do it. And so, kind of given some hope, he then goes and finds his father and invites him to the graduation a couple, that was going to happen in a couple weeks. And uh, his father basically says, you know, I can't come. i got to work. And you just see the dis disappointment flash over his face and as he tries to argue with his father how important this event is. And his father gets angry with him and starts, basically starts telling him that school doesn't matter. That school stuff wasn't going to help him. It didn't, it didn't help his father after all, he said. What was the use? And that he should just kind of give up. I was like, what? And so he held back the tears, went home. And then the miniseries went on to a different topic and eventually it came back to him. And it's a couple of days before the graduation. And then his best friend dies in a do domestic violence dispute in his house. He gets in between his mom and dad who are fighting and, and gets a fatal wound. And so there's this one scene where the boy is laying on his bed trying to process everything that's just happened. And his mom comes into the room and I was just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about this life, our circumstances. I'm so sorry that I can't even get you the suit for your graduation. We got a notice, and they're going to turn off the gas, and I'm sorry. And he starts to cry. You know, it was just the last straw. He couldn't fight anymore, and he was just like, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to make it out of here. The school's not good enough. I'm not going to get to a good college. We don't have the money. It doesn't matter. And kind of like now, I start losing it. It was worse. <laughs> Crying in class, just 
And the mom's crying, and she's explaining to him, no, you know, we can't. You just have to try harder. And he's just, he's just giving up. And I remember walking back to my class, just thinking about how much that woman reminded me of my mom. It was the same language, the same dreams, only theirs wasn't going to come true. My mom's not here to see it, but I am at Westmont. And I was, all I could think of was, why me? Why me? I just read the statistics and saw a video about how most people that look like me, blacks, Hispanics, they don't get opportunities like this. They don't, they don't get to go to private Christian schools or, or come to nice colleges like this, expensive colleges like this. Why me? What was the point? I knew it couldn't be that God had given me all this just so that I could become a doctor and have some nice house on a hill and every now and then go to Bible study or, or go feed the poor every now and then. I mean, what is the point of that? Where's the justice in that? Where's the kind and loving God in that? And that was the first time I realized that with privilege comes responsibility. With my privilege comes responsibility to everyone else. Jesus says that we are to care for the least of those, the hungry, those in prison, those who, who are hurting. And it was at that point that I decided I wasn't going to be a psychiatrist anymore. And I started to pray. I started to think, what skills did I have? What experiences did I, did I have that God could use in this world to further his kingdom? To do something about the situations I had just seen. And I decided I wanted to do poli-sci, pre-law. And as I continued in my poli-sci studies, I realized that I wanted to get into public interest law and become an advocate for the poor. And, you know, I never delved into my studies quite the same as I did for those next two years. It was a different motivation this time. Now, I've always been a perfectionist. I always had to get the A's, but it was partly because it was me and my mom's dream, partly because I wanted to make money. But it was never because I felt responsible to God. It was never because I felt responsible to others. But now, suddenly, that was all it was about, it was about me getting the skills and getting every bit of knowledge and information I could get and use to somehow help further his kingdom. Otherwise, it was all pointless, and it was wrong. It was unfair, unless I did something about it. And each person here is privileged. You might not realize it, because every time you look in the mirror, you're not reminded that people around you don't look anything like you, you know, like me. You know, you don't see the, the race dynamic as much as I do. But, but we're privileged to be here. And yes, God wants us to know him better in our studies. He wants us to love him better. But that's not it. How fair is that to the global south, the rest of the world, who's dying of AIDS in Africa? Poverty, dying from war in the Middle East. It's not fair unless we use this privilege, unless we use everything we have here, every resource 
to become men and women who are willing to do something about that in any field. I don't care if you're called to, to medical research to find a new and cheaper medicine to send to Africa. I don't care if you're called to work in business in the World Bank to come up with some new economic development policies so that developing countries don't have to cut all of their funding for social programs. I don't care what you do. But please, do something big. You are spending a lot of money to come here. <laughs> Invest it. Invest it to further God's kingdom. You know, I'm reminded of um, the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew 25. You guys all remember the parable, right? I mean, the master has three servants. He goes away. But before he goes away, he gives one five talents, another two, and another one. And the one with five talents goes out and it says, puts, let's see, the man who received five talents went out and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one that had two talents gained two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the, the talents, rece received the five talents, brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you, not where you have not scattered seeds. See, I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received back with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to one who has the ten talents. This is about receiving gifts from God. Receiving opportunities from God. Not just spiritual gifts, any kind of opportunity. It's an opportunity to be here. A gift from God. A privilege. It's up to us to fully invest it. To come up with the most returns possible to further God's kingdom. It is not our place to hoard the privilege for our own benefit. God will open doors for us to do great things. We just have to not drop our guards. We just have to be faithful to becoming equipped to walk through those doors. Yes, scholarship is worship when we put it to good use in furthering God's kingdom on earth. Thank you. I'd like to lead you in prayer as we conclude today. 
It's one of the lamentable deficiencies of our evangelical tradition that we do not learn and thus we do not know the prayers and the soul cries of the saints, the towering intellectuals, the keen pillars of the church, ones who have gone before us and have left behind us a rich legacy of prayers. Your private struggle, my private struggle, our private struggle to hold together heart and mind is neither yours nor is it private. It belongs to all of us, passed down from generation to generation. Your unanswered questions, loose ends, sincere doubts, intellectual problems, these are not yours alone. Saints from across the years bear these burdens with you. Saints who have learned to faithfully live in a messy world and to love a God whom we cannot see with all of our minds. So my prayer as we close today is uh, for us, but it's not ours. It's comes down to us from the saints of the past, <clears throat> from the 19th century, and then the 17th, then the 14th, then the 4th, and finally the 1st. That is, we're going to begin uh, a prayer with Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose poem we have sung and now shall repeat. And after that, we'll pray along with Lancelot Andrews, an Anglican scholar who helped uh, translate the King James Version of the Bible, then a brief prayer from Julian of Norwich, Benedictine nun, an English mystic. Uh, then we'll borrow words from St. Augustine, church father, marked by his brilliance and brutal honesty before God. And then conclude with a prayer of St. Paul, whose intellect, I think, was matched only by his zeal to live faithfully to his calling. Let's come together in prayer, shall we? With Alfred Tennyson, Lord, we pray. Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we that have not seen thy faith by have not seen thy face by faith and faith alone embrace believing where we cannot prove. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell that mind and body, mind and soul, according well, may make one music as before. Lord, as Lancelot Andrews has prayed, so do we. Help us, Lord, to receive faith from Christ's miraculous conception, humility from his lowly birth, patience from his suffering, power to crucify the sin in our lives from his cross, burial of all our evil thoughts and good works from his burial, Grant, Lord, that we might be able to meditate on hell from his descent, to find newness of life in his resurrection, to set our minds on things above from his ascension, 
to judge ourselves in preparation of his returning judgment. And with Julian of Norwich, we lovingly pray to thee, O God, by your goodness, give us yourself, for you are enough for us. With St. Augustine, we pray, Lord, let us listen to truth, the light of our hearts, and not to the voices which we heard in the days of our darkness. We wandered away, but we remembered you. We heard your voice at our back calling us to return, though we were scarcely able to hear it in the uproar raised by men who would not live at peace with you. Now we return from the heat of the fray, panting to reach your fountain. Let none keep us from it. There we shall drink, and its waters shall give us life. Speak to us. Breathe the words of truth to us. We have faith in your books, but their message is hard indeed to fathom. And then with Paul, we pray. Our Father, according to the riches of your glory, may you grant that we be strengthened in our inner being with power through your spirit, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, as we are being rooted and grounded in love. We pray that we may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.